Part three of Part eight of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Trilby by Georges Dumaurier. Part eight. Part three. Presently, Mrs. Baggett took a cup of tea to Trilby and found her still staring intently at the portrait, but but with her eyes dilated and quite a strange light in them. Trilby, Trilby, your coffee. What is the matter, Trilby? Trilby was smiling with fixed eyes and made no answer. The others got up and gathered round her in some alarm. Marta seemed terror-stricken and wished to snatch the photograph away, but was prevented from doing so. One didn't know what the consequences might be. Taffy rang the bell, and sent a servant for Dr. Thorne, who lived close by, in Fitzroy Square. Presently, Trolby began to speak, quite softly, in French. Encore une fois? Bon, je veux bien, avec la voix blanche alors, n'est-ce pas? Et puis foncez au milieu, et pas trop vite en commençant. Battez bien la mesure, Zengali, que je puisse bien voir car il fait déjà nuit. C'est ça. Allons, Gecko, donne-moi le ton. Then she smiled, and seemed to beat time softly by moving her head a little from side to side, her eyes intent on Svengalis in the portrait. And suddenly she began to sing Chopin's impromptu in A-flat. She hardly seemed to breathe as the notes came pouring out without words, mere vocalizing. It was as if breath were unnecessary for so little voice as she was using, though there was enough of it to fill the room, to fill the house, to drown her small audience in holy, heavenly sweetness. She was a consummate mistress of her art. How that could be seen, and also how splendid had been her training, it all seemed as easy to her as opening and shutting her eyes, and yet how utterly impossible to anybody else. Between wonder, enchantment, and alarm, they were frozen to statues, all except Marta, who ran out of the room crying, Kotim Himmel, wieder zurück, wieder zurück. She sang it, just as she had sung it at the Salle des Bachibouzouk, only it sounded still more ineffably seductive, as she was using less voice, using the essence of her voice, in fact, the pure spirit, the very cream of it. There can be little doubt that these four watchers by that enchanted couch were listening to not only the most divinely beautiful but also the most astounding feat of musical utrance ever heard out of a human throat. The usual effect was produced. Tears were streaming down the cheeks of Mrs. Baggett and little Billy. Tears were in the laird's eyes, a tear on one of Taffy's whiskers, tears of sheer delight. When she came back to the quick movement again, after the adagio, her voice grew louder and shriller, 
and sweet with a sweetness not of this earth, and went on increasing in volume as she quickened the time nearing the end, and then came the dying away into all but nothing, a mere melodic breath, and then the little soft chromatic ascending rocket up to E in alt, the last parting caress, which Zvengali had introduced as a finale, for it does not exist in the piano score. When it was over, she said, Ça y est-il cette fois, Zvengali? Ah, tant mieux! À la fin, c'est pas malheureux. Et maintenant, mon ami, je suis fatigué. Bonsoir. Her head fell back on the pillow, and she lay fast asleep. Mrs. Baggett took the portrait away gently. Little Billy knelt down and held Trilby's hand in his and felt for her pulse and could not find it. He said, Trilby, Trilby, and put his ear to her mouth to hear her breathe. Her breath was inaudible. But soon she folded her hands across her breast and uttered a little short sigh and in a weak voice said, Svengali, Svengali, Svengali. They remained in silence round her for several minutes, terror-stricken. The doctor came. He put his hand to her heart, his ear to her lips. He turned up one of her eyelids and looked at her eye. And then, his voice quivering with strong emotion, he stood up and said, Madame Svengali's trials and sufferings are all over. Oh, good God! Is she dead? cried Mrs. Baggett. Yes, Mrs. Baggett. She has been dead several minutes, perhaps a quarter of an hour. Vingt ans après. Porthos Athos, alias Taffy Wine, is sitting to breakfast, opposite his wife, at a little table in the courtyard of that huge caravanserai on the Boulevard des Capucines, Paris, where he had sat more than twenty years ago with the laird and little Billy, where, in fact, he had Paul's Vengali's nose. Little is changed in the aspect of the place. The same cosmopolite company, with more of the American element, perhaps, the same arrivals and departures in railway omnibuses, cabs, hired carriages, and, airing his calves on the marble steps, stood just another colossal and beautiful old man in black cloth coat and knee breeches and silk stockings as of yore with probably the very same pinchbeck chain. Where do they breed, these magnificent old Frenchmen? In Germany, perhaps, where all the good big waiters come from. And also the same fine weather. It is always fine weather in the courtyard of the Grand Hôtel. As the laird would say, they manage these things better there. Taffy wears a short beard, which is turning grey, his kind blue eye is no longer choleric, but mild and friendly, as frank as ever, and full of humorous patience. He has grown stouter. He is very big indeed, in all three dimensions, but the symmetry and gainliness of the athlete belongs to him still in movement and repose, and his clothes fit him beautifully, though they are not new and show careful beating and brushing and ironing. And even a faint suspicion 
of all but imperceptible fine drawing here and there. What a magnificent old man he will make some day, should the Grand Hôtel ever run short of them. He looks as if he could be trusted down to the ground, in all things, little or big, as if his word were as good as his bond, and even better, his wink as good as his word, his nod as good as his wink, and in truth, as he looks, so he is. The most cynical disbeliever in the grand old name of gentleman, and its virtues as a noun of definition, would almost be justified in quite dogmatically asserting at sight, and without even being introduced, that at all events Taffy is a gentleman, inside and out, up and down, from the crown of his head, which is getting rather bald, to the sole of his foot, by no means a small one, or a lightly shod, expied herculem. Indeed, this is always the first thing people say of Taffy, and the last. It means, perhaps, that he may be a trifle dull. Well, one can't be everything. Porthos was a trifle dull, and so was Athos, I think, and likewise his son, the faithful Viscount of Bragelonne, bon chien chasse de race, and so was Wilfred of Ivanhoe, the disinherited, and Edgard, the lord of Ravenswood, and so, for that matter, was Colonel Newcombe of immortal memory. Yet, who does not love them? Who would not wish to be like them, for better, for worse? Taffy's wife is unlike Taffy in many ways, but fortunately for both, very like him in some. She is a little woman, very well shaped, very dark, with black, wavy hair, and very small hands and feet, a very graceful, handsome, and vivacious person. By no means tall, full, indeed, of quick perceptions and intuitions, deeply interested in all that is going on about and around her, and with always lots to say about it, but not too much. She distinctly belongs to the rare and ever-blessed and most precious race of charmers. She had fallen in love with the stalwart Taffy, more than a quarter of a century ago, in the Place de Saint-Anatole-des-Arts, where he and she and her mother had attended the sick couch of little Billy. But she had never told her love. Tout vient à point à qui c'est attendre. That is a capital proverb, and sometimes even a true one. Blanche Bagot had found it to be both. One terrible night, never to be forgotten, Taffy lay fast asleep in bed, at his rooms in German Street, for he was very tired. Grief tires more than anything, and brings a deeper slumber. That day, he had followed Trilby to her last home in Kensal Green, with little Billy, Mrs. Baggett, the Laird, Antony, the Greek, and Durian, who had come over from Paris on purpose, as chief mourners, and very many other people, noble, famous or otherwise, English and foreign, a splendid and most representative gathering, as was duly chronicled in all the newspapers here and abroad, a fitting ceremony to close the brief 
but splendid career of the greatest pleasure-giver of our time. He was awakened by a tremendous ringing at the street-door bell, as if the house were on fire, and then there was a hurried scrambling up in the dark, a tumbling over stairs and kicking against banisters, and little Billy had burst into his room, calling out, "'Oh, Taffy, Taffy! I'm going mad! I'm going mad! I'm done for!' "'All right, old fellow. Just wake till I strike a light.' Oh, Taffy, I haven't slept for four nights. Not a wink. She'd died with s s s Damn it! I can't get it out. That ruffian's name on her lips. It was just as if he were calling her from the tomb. She recovered her senses the very minute she saw his photograph. She was so f fond of him, she f forgot everybody else. She's gone straight to him, after all, in some other life. To sleep for him and sing for him, and help him to make better music than ever. Oh, t t oh, oh, Taffy, oh, oh, catch hold, catch. And little Billy had all but fallen on the floor in a fit, and all the old miserable business of five years before had begun over again. There has been too much sickness in this story, so I will tell as little as possible of poor little Billy's long illness. His slow and only partial recovery, the paralysis of his powers as a painter, his quick decline, his early death, his manly, calm, and most beautiful surrender, the wedding of the moth with the star, of the night with the morrow. For all but blameless as his short life had been, and so full of splendid promise and performance, nothing ever became him better than the way he left it. It was as if he were staring on some distant holy quest, like some gallant knight of old, a beckoned to the rescue in another life. It shook the infallibility of a certain viker down to its very foundations, and made him think more deeply about things than he had ever thought yet. It gave him pause, and so wrung his heart that when, at the last, he stopped to kiss his poor young dead friend's pure white forehead, he dropped a bigger tear on it than little Billy, once so given to the dropping of big tears, had ever dropped in his life. But it is all too sad to write about. It was by little Billy's bedside in Devonshire that Taffy had grown to love Blanche Baguette, and not very many weeks after it was all over that Taffy had asked her to be his wife, and in a year they were married, and a very happy marriage it turned out, the one thing that poor Mrs. Baguette still looks upon as a compensation for all the griefs and troubles of her life. During the first year or two, Blanche had perhaps been the most ardently loving of the well-assorted pair. That beautiful look of love, surprised, which makes all women's eye look the same, came into hers whenever she looked at Taffy, and filled his heart with tender compunction and a queer sense of his own unworthiness. Then a boy was born to them, and that look fell on the boy, and the good Taffy caught it as it passed him by, 
and he felt a helpless, absurd jealousy that was none the less painful for being so ridiculous. And then that look fell on another boy, and yet another, so that it was through these boys that she looked at their father. Then his eyes caught the look, and kept it for their own use, and he grew never to look at his wife without it, and, as no daughter came, she retained for life the monopoly of that most sweet and expressive regard. They are not very rich. He is a far better sportsman than he will ever be a painter, and if he doesn't sell his pictures, it is not because they are too good for the public taste. Indeed, he has no illusions on that score himself, even if his wife has. He is quite the least conceited art duffer I ever met, and I have met far many worse duffers than Taffy. Would only that I might kill off his cousin Sir Oscar, and Sir Oscar's five sons. The wines are good at sons. And his seventeen grandsons, and the fourteen cousins, and their numerous male progeny, that stands between Taffy and the baronetcy, and whatever property goes with it, so that he might be Sir Taffy, and dear Blanche Bagotte, that was, might be called, my lady. This Shakespearean holocaust would scarcely cost me a pang. It is a great temptation, when you have duly slain your first hero, to enrich hero number two beyond the dreams of avarice, and provide him with a title and castle and park, as well as a handsome wife and a nice family. But truth is inexorable, and besides, they are just as happy as they are. They are well off enough, anyhow, to spend a week in Paris at last, and even to stop at the Grand Hôtel. Now that two of their sons are at Harrow, where their father was before them, and the third is safe at a preparatory school at Elstree, Hertz. It is their first outing since the honeymoon, and the laird should have come with them. But the good laird of Cockpen, who is now a famous royal academician, is preparing for a honeymoon of his own. He has gone to Scotland to be married himself, to wed a fair and clever countrywoman of just a suitable age, for he has known her ever since she was a bright little lassie in short frocks, and he, a promising A.R.A., the pride of his native Dundee, a marriage of reason, and well-seasoned affection, and mutual esteem, and therefore sure to turn out a happy one. And in another fortnight or so, the pair of them will very possibly be sitting to breakfast opposite each other at that very corner table in the courtyard of the Grand Hôtel, and she will laugh at everything he says, and they will live happily ever after. So much for hero number three, D'Artagnan. Here's to you, Sandy Malister, canniest, genialist, and most humorous of Scots, most delicate and dainty and fanciful of British painters. I drink your health, meet your families. May you live long and prosper. So Taffy and his wife have come for their second honeymoon, their Italian summer honeymoon, alone, and are well content that it should be so. Two's always company for such a pair. 
the amusing one, and the amusable, and they are making the most of it. They have been all over the Quartier Latin, and revisited the well-remembered spot, and even been allowed to enter the old studio, through the kindness of the concierge, who is no longer Madame Vinard. It is tenanted by two American painters, who are coldly civil on being thus disturbed in the middle of their work. The studio is very spick and span, and most respectable. Trilby's foot and the poem and the sheet of plate glass have been improved away, and a bookshelf put in their place. The new concierge, who has only been there a year, knows nothing of Trilby and of the Vinard, only that they are rich and prosperous, and live somewhere in the south of France, and that Monsieur Vinard is mayor of his commune. Que le bon Dieu les bénisse, c'était de bien braves gens. Then, Mr. and Mrs. Taffy have also been driven, in an open calèche with two horses, through the Bois de Boulogne to Saint-Cloud and to Versailles, where they lunched at the Hôtel des Réservoirs, par les mois de ça, and to Saint-Germain and to Meudon, where they lunched at La Loge du Gare de Champêtre, a new one. They have visited the Salon the Louvre, the porcelain manufactory at Sèvres, the Gobelin, the Hôtel Cluny, the Invalids, with Napoleon's tomb, and seen half a dozen churches, including Notre-Dame and the Sainte-Chapelle, and dined with the Dodor and their charming villa near Asnières, and with the Zouzous and the splendid Hôtel de la Roche-Martel, with the Duriens in the Parc Monceau. Dodor's food was best, and Zuzu's worst, and at Durian's the company and talk were so good that one forgot to notice the food. And that was a pity. And the young Dodors are all right, and so are the young Durian's. As for the young Zuzu's, there aren't any, and that's a weight of one's mind. And they've been to the Varieté, and seen Madame Chaumont, and to the Français, and seen Sarah Bernhardt, and Coquelin, and Delaunay, and to the opera, and heard Monsieur Lassalle. And today, being their last day, they are going to lace and flane about the boulevards, and buy things, and lunch anywhere, sur le pouce, and do the bois once more, and see to Paris, and dine early at Durand's, or Brignon's, or else the Café des Ambassadeurs and finish up the well-spent day at the Mouche d'Espagne, the new theatre in the boulevard Poissonnière, to see Madame Cantaridi in Petit Bonheur de Contrebande, which they are told is immensely droll and quite proper, funny without being vulgar. Dodor was their informant. He had taken Madame Dodor to see it three or four times. Madame Cantaridi, as everybody knows, is a very clever but extremely plain old woman, with a cracked voice, of spotless reputation, and the irreproachable mother of a grown-up family whom she had brought up in perfection. They have never been allowed to see their mother and grandmother act, not even the sons. Their excellent father, who adores both them and her, has drawn the line at that. In private life, she is quite the lady, but on stage, well, go and see her. 
and you will understand how she comes to be the idol of the Parisian public. For she is the true and liberal dispenser to them of that modern esprit gaulois, which would make the good Rabelais turn uneasily in his grave and blush there like a Benedictine sister. And truly, she deserves the reverential love and gratitude of her cher Parisien. She amused them all through the empire during the Année Terrible. She was their only stay and comfort, and has been their chief delight ever since, and is now. When they come back from La Revanche, may Madame Cantaridi be still at her post. Les Mouches d'Espagne, to welcome the returning heroes, and exult and crow with them in her funny cracked old voice, or happily even console them once more, as the case may be. Victors or vanquished, they will laugh the same. Mrs. Taffy is a poor French scholar. One must know French very well indeed, and many other things besides, to seize the subtle points of Madame Cantaridi's play, and by play. But Madame Cantaridi has so droll a face and voice, and such very droll, odd movements, that Mrs. Taffy goes into fits of laughter as soon as the quaint little old lady comes on the stage. So heartily does she laugh, that a good Parisian bourgeois turns round and remarks to his wife, V'là une jolie petite Anglaise qui n'est pas bégueule au moins. Et le gros bœuf avec les yeux bleus en boule de l'auto, c'est son mari sans doute. Il n'a pas l'air trop content, par exemple, celui-là. The fact is that the good Taffy, who knows French very well indeed, is quite scandalized and very angry with Dodor for sending them there. And as soon as the first act is finished, he means, without any fuss, to take his wife away. As he sits patiently, too indignant to laugh at what is really funny in the piece, much of it is vulgar without being funny, he finds himself watching a little white-haired man in the orchestra, a fiddler, the shape of whose back seems somehow familiar. As he plays an obligato accompaniment to a very broadly comic song of Madame Cantaridi's, he plays beautifully, like a master and the loud applause is as much for him as for the vocalist. End of Part 3 Part 8 Recording by J.C. Kwan, Montreal, July 2010